0: Here again, whoo-hoo, am I, I am really on. <laughs> um, Katie asked how she should introduce me, and I said, well, the most important thing is that I'm the grandma Theo. <laughs> she thought that had great theological significance for us. <laughs> and I'm struggling to let my husband hold him while I'm up here. But. So what makes a great story? strong characters, a seemingly insurmountable problem, and somehow against all odds, the protagonist figures it all out. He solves the problem and he vanquishes the enemy. Think of J.R. Tolkien. Will Frodo be able to keep the ring safe and save all of Middle-earth or in Les Miserables? Will that John Valjean ever be free of the legalistic Javert trying to hunt him down and take him back to the prison camp? A story can be even more engaging when it's true. You can't always e- easily predict the outcome. Sometimes the main characters die. Sometimes it doesn't have that happily ever after ending, does it? In the book Unbroken, it's a story about Luis Zamperini how he overcomes this not so stellar childhood, <clears throat> but then he gets to run in the nineteen thirty-six Berlin Olympics. But then his plane is shot down in World War II. And for 47 days he's in the life draft circling circled by sharks. And then he's only to be captured by the Japanese and brutalized in his prison of war camp under a sadistic guard. And you wonder, how can this man possibly survive? (coughs) Or there's another book that I love called Endurance. tells a story of Ernest Shackleton, one of the early explorers to Antarctica. In 1915, his ship, which was called the Endurance, was caught in sea ice in the Weddell Sea at at Antarctica, and it was crushed by the sea ice. And the men escape the, the, the ship, but how are they ever going to make it home? Of course, there's the modern-day tale. Will the Seahawks make it to the, to the postseason? <laughs> but tonight, we get to read one of the most amazing stories ever. It has all the qualities of a great epic That's probably why they made it into a movie. (laughs) But it has those strong characters. It has the seemingly insurmountable problem, good versus evil. But first, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to get what you have for us tonight. May we not just enjoy a good story, but may we encounter you in the midst of it. May we see how we fit in the great story. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. So, I understand that you have made it now through all the plagues. And the Israelites have made their great escape. They've been released from Pharaoh's clutches and the slavery of the Egyptians. And God's presence goes with them. He's leading them by the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night. And we're told in chapter 13 that God doesn't want them to immediately face war. So he leads them the long way to avoid the Philistines. So we're going to pick up the story tonight, chapter 14, and I'm afraid I don't have your page number, so if somebody gets it, you can shout it out, but I'm not going to have you stand up, because I'm going to read it in chunks tonight. Anybody have a page? 69. Great, thank you, 69. So we're starting, chapter 14, in verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp in camp near pi hi between Migdal and the sea. And they are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through, the, through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So we meet our main characters, don't we? The Lord, in capital letters, Yahweh, who's leading Moses, and Moses, who's leading the Israelites, and Pharaoh, who is king of the Egyptians. The Israelites, they're well on their way. And then the Lord tells Moses, to have them turn back and to camp by the sea. Now these, these places are named, but the locations have been lost in time. But so suffice to say, this is not very smart military strategy. They've got their backs to the sea with no escape. But God assures Moses that he's doing this, so Pharaoh will think that they are just confused and clueless. That he wants to lure Pharaoh out, thinking that they're just helpless sitting ducks hemmed in by the wilderness. And God somehow will use it to show the Egyptians who is the one true God. So starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about them and said, what have we done We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, Horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi High Hyrath opposite Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh is told that the Israelites are on the run, which conflicts a little bit with verse 8, where it says the Israelites marched out boldly. It's not like they're fleeing. And Pharaoh has realizes he's lost his cheap workforce. So he gathers all his elite charioteers, all his army, and it repeatedly mentions this throughout the section, chariots, his officers, troops, horses, horsemen. This is no minor military maneuver here. The chariot of that day was a fearsome war tool, drawn by two horses and with a crew of either two or three men. The crews were highly skilled, and they were kind of the military hotshots of that day. You might think like we think of the fighter pilots or Navy SEALs. And Pharaoh, he gathers, says, 600 of his best chariots, but then it says he gathers all the other chariots too in Egypt. And imagine seeing all those chariots coming at you plus a well-trained, well-equipped army on the march. And you might wonder, if you've been here in past weeks, why would Pharaoh do this after all they'd been through with the plagues? Why would he come after the Israelites again? The people maybe look puny, but he should know by now, but you don't mess with their God. But in ancient times, the gods and the goddesses that they believed controlled the world, they were often capricious. They often changed their minds. They might be in one place for a while, and then they might suddenly leave it. Or they might be with a people for a while, and then leave them. So maybe, possibly, Pharaoh thought, hmm, maybe this God of the Israelites, this Yahweh, was the same as all the other gods that he knew of. Maybe Yahweh was fickle and would lose interest in the Israelites. And he could see that the Israelites were just a bunch of families with herds, old and young, men and women. They had been slaves, not soldiers. They'd made bricks, not war. They were poorly armed, untrained, with their backs to the sea, with no route of escape. Easy pickings. There are some wonderful ironies in this passage. In chapter 13, it had said that he wanted to take the Israelites the long way so they would avoid war. And here they are, up against the most powerful army in the earth at that time. The Israelites are trapped between the sea and this huge army, looking completely vulnerable. But who's really the vulnerable ones? It's the Egyptians who are going after God's people. And Pharaoh thinks he can fight against Yahweh, the almighty God who created the universe with horses and chariots. Hmm, Good luck with that. Who do you think is going to win? As Peter Enns put it, God induces Pharaoh to move his king into checkmate and he doesn't even realize it. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. The Israelites, they don't see the big picture. They only see this huge, powerful army that's coming straight at them. And they start whining to Moses, We could have just as well died in Egypt. We didn't have to come all the way out here to die have been better to just be slaves, that old familiar fear that we knew, than to die here. They have completely forgotten the main character in this story, Yahweh, the Lord God. In their minds, he's not even in the story. After all they'd experienced and all those plagues, they still think they only have two choices, serving the Egyptians in slavery Or death. They're living like they have no hope. No power beyond their own. No God. Verse 13. So Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses reminds them there is a third option. God is still very much a part of the story, and they are to stop whining, stand firm, and watch and see what he will do. Commentators disagree. Are these words of encouragement? Or are they words of rebuke? But they're strong words. And they and we often need to hear them, don't we? Stop whining. Remember you have a big God. And he's the main character of this story that we're living. So in verses, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gained glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left And now we have the answer to the seemingly insurmountable problem. The good guys are saved. The angel cloud, this amazing manifestation of God's presence with them, it moves from in front of them to behind them. And it creates this barrier between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It says that throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side, we assume the Egyptians, and it brought light to the other. And it doesn't say that this was frightening. It doesn't say that the Egyptians saw this huge thing and were frightened and ran away. But somehow it creates this buffer that neither side broaches. And the Lord tells Moses to stretch out your hand over the sea, which we assume, many assume, held the staff that signified God's power through the plagues, and through the night, a great wind comes up, a hot east wind, which was very common in those parts, and dry land appears between two walls of water, and the Hebrew word that they use for wall here, it means, usually means a huge city wall, this isn't like just a little garden wall. And the word for sea implies a large body of water. Sometimes people say, oh, he just dried up a marshy area so that they could go through. But the words that are used here implies that it was a large body of water that splits apart with towering walls on each side. God used these common items of creation, cloud, light, darkness, wind, water, land, for his extraordinary purposes. Starting at 23, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea, and the water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived All of Pharaoh's might plowed into this tunnel behind them. And during the last watch, which is between 2 and 6 in the morning, the Lord began his counterattack. He created such a confusion among them. And the Hebrew there means a chaotic, noisy panic. Can you imagine that? And then the NIV said he made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. Some translations say that the wheels were turned from their paths, and others translate it they were clogged, like they were getting stuck in the mud. The Egyptians were in absolute pandemonium, and their beautiful, mighty chariots weren't helping them. They were working against them. And the Egyptians finally figure it out. (gasps) God is fighting for the Israelites against us. And then the Lord's final strike comes. And he tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea, and the waters flow back together over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. This is the rated R part, isn't it? (laughs) All that military might that had been arrayed against God's people And the sea comes back together, covering them up, and it says not one of them survived. The good guys are saved. The bad guys are destroyed. You can cue the credits now. Verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Do you remember back in verse 4, why God said he was going to do all this. He said he was going to gain glory for himself through Pharaoh and all his army so the Egyptians would know that he was the Lord. And now in verse 31, it says, when the Israelites saw all this, they feared the Lord. They saw he was worthy of their awe and their reverence, and they put their trust in him. They also recognized that God had used Moses and they put their trust in him too. Through this event, both the Egyptians and the Israelites saw God's power, his absolute preeminence. He had showed his authority over creation and the greatest earthly powers of that time. In the battle of the King of Kings and Gods through the plagues and through the deliverance at the Red Sea, God definitively won, and he won big. This is the happily ever ever after moment for the Israelites until the next installment. You can stay tuned, Chris will fill you in on that. It's an amazing story, and it's even more amazing because it's true. But there's another cool thing about stories, not all of them, but some of them have a deeper meaning. Sometimes a story points to something more. Sometimes you can tell by the language, the way the narrative is put together, the symbolism, that there's more going on than just the obvious. Like in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a wonderful tale of children and going into an an imaginary land. There's the magical beasts and mythical animals and lots of magic. But as Christian readers, we know... But there's imagery there, and the narrative is describing deep Christian truths. From Aslan the Great Lion's sacrificial death to the great battle between good and evil, we see the greater story being played out. And in ancient times, the sea represented Chaos, destruction, and evil, and death. And it was the place where evil things would emerge and wicked things would descend. In the book of Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea, and it's the place where the dead go, or it's filled with the dead. That's why when Jesus calms the sea in our New Testament, why it was so astounding. It wasn't just that he had power over creation. In in their world, he had power over evil, over chaos. Water was also used in judgment. Think about Jonah getting tossed in the water when he tried to run away from God. Or Noah, that's the most obvious one. And his family, they're, they're the only ones saved in the ark. And all the rest of humanity is drowned in the flood. Water signifies an ancient Cosmic battle, and Pharaoh and his forces are seen as this ultimate anti-God power. They've been bent against God and in destroying His people. And think about it: Pharaoh even tried to destroy the Israelites by throwing their babe, boy babies where? In the Nile, in the water. And the Lord brings the ultimate payback here, drowning the Egyptians in the evil sea of chaos. It's not just a story about how God miraculously destroys a powerful king and his army. It's a story about God having the ultimate power over all the oppressive, chaotic, and evil forces of the universe. It's a great story. God miraculously saving a group of people that he might create a nation for himself. But it's also how God has the amazing power over evil. There's nothing, there's no power, there's no God that can compare to our Lord God. He has total authority over creation. And the crossing of the Red Sea is just this wonderful paradigm of salvation and deliverance. God desires to bring all of us out of bondage and oppression. He desires to create all of us into a new people for himself. He wants to save all of us from what enslaves us, what oppresses us, and what ultimately leads to our death. And Moses, he is the mediator between God and the people. He takes on the characteristics of both. And when the people cry out and start whining... Who gets rebuked? Moses. Moses points ahead to that great mediator. A greater Moses, spoken of in the book of Hebrews. And the greater Moses takes us through those waters of baptism and brings us through to become a new people, a new nation, a holy nation. Holy means set apart set apart to fulfill God's purposes. The crossing of the Red Sea reveals God's heart for redemption that's realized in Jesus Christ. It points to that final exodus when we pass through the waters of death to enter the new Jerusalem to worship forever in God's presence. But where do we fit in the story now? Donald Miller Wrote a wonderful book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, How I Learned to Live a Better Story. Some people wanted to make a movie of his life. And when he thought about it, he realized his life was pretty boring. And he thought, hmm, I need to make my life more interesting so it'll be more interesting in this movie. So he decides to basically edit his life, and he re- and he writes the book, and the book is written about this whole attempt to basically create a more interesting life narrative. So how do we live a great story? We live a great story by living in the great story. The great story is God's story, and it's in that story that the seemingly insurmountable problem is, is already solved. The evil has already been vanquished. The evil is all those oppressive forces that enslaved us. The evil is death itself. The evil is the punishment that we deserved for not believing, for not following the God over all creation. And though our backs were against the wall and we had no hope for escape by our own power, God made a way. God made a way through that judgment we deserved, and he gave his son as the ultimate mediator. When we are baptized, it's that image of Christ's death and resurrection. We go into the waters, and we come out on the other side, a new people, God's people, set apart for God's purposes. So the question is, why do we so often live like we've never crossed the red sea why do we live like the israelites did like god is not a part of the story like god is not really the god that we read about in our bible we live as if we're still slaves that the thing things still hold us in bondage as if there's no God there. There's no main character. He's not powerful enough to help us. As if our lives have no purpose beyond the obvious. As if there is no great story beneath our life narratives. But Egypt is behind us. Through faith, we have crossed those waters The passage that was read earlier was from Isaiah 43. This is what it said. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses and army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And the Lord, He promises that He is going to make that way. He is going to provide in the desert. And He is going to create a people, His chosen. The people he forms for himself, and they, we, will proclaim his praise. So why do we so often live like we have no hope, no power beyond our own, and no God? Through faith in Jesus, through faith in our Jesus, on Christ, Egypt is behind us. Slavery, oppression, the evil that desires to captivate us and control us, it no longer has power. God has delivered us, he goes before us, and maybe it's not in the pillar of cloud and fire like we'd like, but he goes ahead and he calls us to follow him. We have a God who has conquered all evil and is over all creation. Can't we trust him? Now this is a spoiler alert for the sermons to come. I don't know how far he's going in in Exodus here. But we don't really want to make the Israelites our models. They cross through the sea, and then they grumble, and then they complain, and then they create idols to worship. And when the time finally comes when they get to enter that promised land, they don't trust God to do what he's gonna says he's going to do. So what did they do? They spend another 40 years trying to figure it out. That's not the example that we want to follow. God says forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. He calls us to be a new people, his very own people set apart for his purposes, for his glory, to declare his praises. What parts of Egypt do you still hang on to? What sins, what fears, wounds, selfish desires, lies? If you've trusted in Christ, you've crossed through the waters. Deliverance has already happened. Forget the former things, leave Egypt behind, and claim the new thing that God is doing. Live a great story by living in the great story. There are already some pretty fantastic characters in this story. The seemingly insurmountable problem, it's already been conquered. The enemy's been vanquished, but the rest of the story, it's up to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of salvation and deliverance, that you have brought us through the waters by the death of your Son. And we do pray that if there are parts of Egypt that we're still clinging to, that you would bring them to mind and that you we might lay them before you and confess and leave them behind. And if there are ways that we have not trusted you for the new things that you long to do in our lives, where we maybe haven't stepped forward in faith and obedience as you've called us to do. We pray that you would bring that to mind, that we can lay them before you and confess and begin anew. And as we move into the week ahead, we pray that you would keep us mindful That there is more going on than we can see. That in our everyday lives, we have the opportunity to live out your eternal purposes. We pray that we will live a great story by living in your great story. Amen.